Cities are living organisms. As they grow, there is an exponentially positive impact on a range of measures such as patents generated, economic output and levels of creativity and innovation. Hello and welcome to Public Sector Perspectives, ideas and insights about the public sector during the COVID crisis. I'm Hayley Ricketson from IPA Victoria. That was a quote from the book Solved, How Other Countries Have Cracked the World's Biggest Problems and We Can Too by Senior Public Servant Andrew Weir. Andrew is Director of Economic Development at the City of Melbourne and has worked extensively across the public service. If a city is a constantly evolving and growing thing, what happens when we put it on pause? In Chapter 9 of his book, Andrew discusses Urban Revival, How to Create Smart Cities. And now he's going to discuss it with us. Welcome, Andrew. Hello, Haley. Great to be here. In this chapter, you look at Phoenix, Arizona, as an example of a successful, densely populated city or a smart city. Can you walk me through what you mean by a smart city? Yeah. Um, well, Phoenix in Arizona had many of, many after the global financial crisis, had many of the similar challenges that will be faced by cities in Australia. Its economy historically had been built on population growth. It had seen retirees moving, uh, uh, people coming to play golf and tourism and everyone seeking the sun, essentially. And after the global financial crisis, that population growth switched off much the same way that our tourism industries have switched off now, our migration has switched off, etc. And when I, in researching my book, I spoke with the Director of Economic Deve- Development at the City of Phoenix and, and other people involved in the Phoenix economy. And they told me the story of the realisation that dawned on, on them at that moment that they really had to create an economy in their city that wasn't dependent on population growth, that didn't leave them vulnerable to the next downturn. And what they did was they turned their mind to the notion that their city needed to become a smart city, as you say, a city that generated ideas and innovation and had um, something of economic value that could be exported to the world. And they recounted the stories of looking around the US in particular and seeing cities such as Silicon Valley and New York and Boston and seeing how at their cores they had these densely populated urban innovation areas with universities, with startups, other innovative large companies investing in R&D, all working together in a very dense clustered core where people were bumping into each other, catching up for coffee or lunch, sharing ideas, developing and commercializing knowledge. And, um, and they thought we want one of those for Phoenix too. And so they had a look around and realized that actually the downtown core of Phoenix shared many of those properties. And so they got together property developers, the, the, the mayor, uh, philanthropists, the universities, and many of the others involved in the city and, and really worked hard on creating what became known as PHX Core, the Phoenix, um, what is the Phoenix Innovation District in downtown Phoenix. And it's been extraordinarily successful. Yeah. Um, and in this chapter, you also discuss, as you mentioned, how the global financial crisis affected cities. And we can see similarities now with the effect of COVID-19, such as rising unemployment and an unstable housing market. So considering this, what do you see as the greatest challenge facing cities as a result of COVID-19? And how would you go about addressing those challenges considering the similarity in context to the GFCs? Like what did we learn then that we could apply now? Yeah. Well, I think one of the things we 
we, we're facing at the moment is uh, as a bit of an existential crisis for cities at the moment because the essence of cities is densely populated places where people come together to interact, which is exactly the sort of uh, thing that we don't need in the context of a pandemic. But pan cities, have cities, cities have faced pandemics before many times in the past. They've always rebounded. Uh, they've faced many crises in the past um, and have always recovered. And we will, cities will recover from this crisis too. The question that remains though is to what extent will cities be different after this pandemic? What will, what will be, what will just be bounced back and what will be different? And some of those questions um, are really not, not yet clear at all. And if, so, and if we do rebound, how long will it take? Will people want to come back to their office jobs in the, in the, in the CBD areas of Australian cities um, in the same way that they did before? Will they want to work five days a week when they do? Uh, or will they want to maintain a couple of days a week at home? Will employers um, want to invest in expensive CBD-based real estate when, when, when their staff don't particularly want to be there? And some of those questions are really unresolved. But at their heart, at their heart, of what drives cities and has always driven cities is um, for decades and, and centuries is this notion that humans are social beings. We love to share and develop knowledge. And when we come together, we create something that is greater than the sum of what we could do individually. And, and by that collision of ideas and inspiration and the ability to collaborate and have serendipitous moments of interaction, that's the value that cities offer and of, and bring and cities have generally grown at a faster pace economically than than in areas outside of cities and so around the world we've seen this mass urbanization and the trends that have created that will continue and i, I have every confidence in cities ability to rebound but we will need to think through some of these challenges that COVID 19 has thrown us and and really understand what more resilient cities might need to be like in future cities that perhaps don't rely so much on, uh, on population growth as drivers of their underlying success. We're gonna to have to face the same critical moment that Phoenix faced um, after the global financial crisis. And we're gonna to have to confront that in Australia into the future. In that sense of, you know, cities have that great potential to sort of bring people together and create something or contribute to society in a more communal way. Like you can discover things together more than you can build something on your own. Is, is there sort of a concern that we will still do that, but we'll be doing it from the comfort of our home for, you know, the foreseeable future and the, you'll essentially have more of an online city as opposed to a physical coming together of people. And would that affect our understanding of a city as a society or even how it operates? Well, that's, that's absolutely the right question. I think it's a fantastic question. And, and we really don't know the answer to that yet. I mean, cities have been the driver of productivity, productivity growth um, in Australia and around the world, um, as, a, as, as I mentioned. Uh, and so far, what we've seen from the working from home experience is that employers are reporting that working from home has not diminished productivity at all. And in fact, in some cases may have even increased it. But that's over a relatively short-term period. What remains to be seen is whether long-term that the, the productivity growth can be sustained. And working from home may, for example, work, work well when it comes to task-focused work. But when it comes to 
the serendipitous interactions, the sort of bumping into someone in a street, the the laughing in the corridor in the tea room, or the you know, or the catching up for coffee. Working from home perhaps doesn't deliver that same experience. So we, what we may find is that over the medium to long term experience, we while the tasks get done very efficiently, we may find we miss some of that the sort of intangible innovation and and ideas generation that comes from being humans uh, engaging with each other as humans in a in a in a very proximate way in in a, in a city but that remains to be seen and i think that's one of the great uh fascinating unknowns that that will emerge emerge from this and will in a to a large extent determine the trajectory that our cities take well, I guess it will. It also remains to be seen how that will be measured in the medium to long term. You know, where how lacking are we in in innovation or ideas or progress to a certain degree? Yeah. Well, in the end, it will be determined probably by the economics. It's uh, which firms are the most successful and how do they operate, and it will also be determined by by employees. Where do they want to work and how do they want to work? And it's interesting what we've experienced. Anecdotally, in in Melbourne over the first lockdown and the second lockdown, is that increasingly what I'm hearing is this hunger, this appetite to get back to work in the CBD or in the city in their office to be interacting with their colleagues in a in a very human way. The novelty of working from home has worn off, and I do wonder how, if working from home were to continue for an extended period of time. Uh, the extent to which people would genuinely actually want to continue it. Um, and I guess all of these unknowns and no one really can gaze into their crystal ball and know the answers to this because this is a human experiment on a grand scale that we've really never seen before. So it is really quite fascinating to see how it will play out and quite consequential too, because the the implications for our cities, um, our economies and our and our wellbeing are, are quite profound, I think. You also discuss in this chapter how within a postcode education or lack thereof can be a correlating factor to income level of poverty and even mortality and here in Melbourne we're experiencing our second wave or a huge spike in coronavirus infections namely through community transmission and as we know it's been largely concentrated in specific postcodes typically poorer suburbs and was affecting a number of public housing towers so firstly, based on what you've researched and what you know, why, why do you think this is? Is it the work that they, they do or the level of education or a combination of factors? Without speculating too much on the, on the Melbourne um, COVID situation, what is abundantly clear from the, from the evidence and from um, the, the review that I did of many countries around the world writing the book was that education and inequality play such a critically important part in in influencing outcomes in almost every single domain and where you've got inequality inequalities of in in terms of economy or inequalities in terms of educational outcomes you will see inequalities in a whole host of other areas as well and and what we know is that investing in education makes sense it makes sense not just for um from a social policy perspective, but it also makes sense because it actually improves economic growth because, and, and whether it be the OECD or the IMF or the World Bank 
all of them are now agreeing that actually if we can reduce inequality, that will actually lead to greater economic growth. And that is because if people are, um, if there's too much inequality, it leads to people underinvesting in the education of children, uh, of children from disadvantaged areas. And if that, if, and if that, if, children with otherwise great potential are under investing in under investing in their education that then means that we don't go on to see the benefits or the 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 amazing possibilities that would have arisen from those from uh, those children had they had a great investment in education in their, and in their, in their futures so around the world investing in education is one of the best bets that we can make whether to improve health outcomes whether that be women in sub-Saharan Africa having fewer babies um, uh, because, of because of greater education, whether that be people living longer because of greater education, whether that be people, whether that be economies as a whole um, being stronger because of greater education, the evidence is, is clear. Reducing inequality, likewise, um, the evidence is clear. And um, after the pandemic, when, this, when, when, we, when we're starting to think about what will the future look like? What should the future look like? What would we like it to look like? Um, what I really hope is that we can ask some of those fundamental questions. What sort of society do we want to build back? Can we build back one that was even better than before? One, one where those inequalities can be addressed and whereby we can get the best out of each and every one of us in society by supporting them with the education, uh, with the healthcare and the housing um, that is required um, to to lead a um, a fantastic and productive life and great opportunity for us, I think. And regardless of where you look around the world, often these crises are an opportunity to revisit the some of the fundamental assumptions that underpin it. Whether it was the global financial crisis in Phoenix or or the Christchurch earthquakes or or even more fundamental ones such as the rebuilding of economies after war often we see the opportunity to create something that's even better. Um, and often might take a, it might take a little while, but your economies and countries and places recovering from crisis are often go on to be leading amazing, developing amazing futures, um, often securing far better outcomes. So we have to realise that opportunity, I think, in Australia. Yeah, as a sort of additional question or commentary to that, what do you think COVID-19 has told us about our city as a living, breathing organism? Yeah, well, in Melbourne, Melbourne clearly is a city that's um, made up of many parts. You and I are talking about work from home, but I think for the, if I recall the statistics correctly, only about 40% of jobs can be done working from home. And that's actually uh, a small, uh, uh, less than half, obviously. And most jobs, whether it be, those working in healthcare or education or manufacturing or transport and logistics or hospitality, any of those jobs, those jobs aren't done from home. And in a lot of ways, working from home is, is a privilege, uh, privilege that people like you and I are afforded. And so I think it's um, important that we, we do bear that in mind is that some of us are experiencing the city in different ways and we're all experiencing the city in different ways depending on our circumstances whether we're living in a densely populated apartment tower you know, or a, a large house in suburbia whether we're able to isolate at home or whether we're out in a uh, crowded workplace on a day-to-day -day basis that's that's um that's a really critical thing but it's also the the pandemic reveals that 
as an organism, it's organic in the sense that what we produce, we produce together. Uh, we, when individually, we, um, we're not, not really at our best. We, we, we aren't producing in the same way as we are when we come together in large groups um, to innovate and share ideas and knowledge. And we improvise ways of doing that when we're locked down, working from home by video conferencing or other things. But a bit like a, a hive of bees, we, we, do, we do collaborate and cooperate um, to, and compete to, um, to drive and develop interesting ideas. And, and when that gets disrupted by, an example, by, um, by a crisis such as this, the city feels it and and we are going to see as the data is revealed some very very significant impacts on the city of this and and i think what we're going to see is the more densely populated an area is with um with workers and the more disrupted that's being the more the economic impact will 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 become apparent so areas like the inner cities of melbourne and sydney um, will be some of the most impacted regions in the country, which is, I think is the first time we've seen something like that. Often it's the regions or, or other areas that are actually the most severely impacted in, a, in an economic downturn. So this time around, it'll be quite different because the movement of people has been disrupted so much and the ability to do what, what we do best when we, by coming together has been disrupted. And I think it's quite a profound thing that we're, we're, we're grappling with. Yeah, so in sort of following on from that in in the chapter you include five things we can do now in looking at any any sort of given problem and in this chapter you name things like investing in public research and supporting startups and using government procurement to drive innovation so which of these things looking at sort of recovery which of these things seem most important to do right now and what can be achieved yeah, well, that, well you, re, you referenced the, um, that particular chapter on cities. It's, it's a really important one. And, and I think as we contemplate our future in cities in a post-pandemic world, focusing on growth that we can, focusing on economic growth that, that can be to some extent independent of population growth is going to be really critical. So that's going to be in highly productive sectors. It might be uh, in uh, biotechnology or fintech or... Um, ICT, other series where we can be amongst the world's best and lead the world globally. That'll be really, really critical. But looking across the across multiple policy domains and many of the chapters of the book, I think we will also need to step back and have a, look, a broader look at the way our society and economy works. Um, one of the opportunities for us will might be, for example, to think about the way we work. We've we've had a really great opportunity with that with work from home example, but the opportunity to have a think about uh, working hours. How do we work? How do we combine work and family? How do we ensure that parents of both genders are able to achieve a great balance of um, of support for children and employment. Uh, we've got a great opportunity to unpack and, and, and put back together in a way that, that we can design that. And I think other countries have shown us that it's possible to do that. Norway, for the average Norwegian, even pre, pre-pandemic, work for an average of 249 hours less every year than the average Australian, or six and a half weeks. They um, typically finish work at four o'clock every afternoon are able to balance that work and family dimension um, in, a, in a fantastic way. The average Icelandic father takes three months leave for the birth of every child supported by the government. We have this opportunity now at this moment to actually revisit some of those fundamental foundations in our society to, to actually create the future. 
But I think um, what this has taught us too is, is, some, is about some other important policy dimensions. Australia's already had a fantastic public health system, for example, amongst the best in the world with universal health care. It's a really top-notch quality of care. And that stood us in great stead during the pandemic. But it's not perfect. And we can take that further. Other countries in the world, for example, offer universal health care for, for dental care, for example. We can, we can look at what we might be able to do there. And clearly, Australia is not performing particularly well in the area of inequality. Other countries, particularly some of those in the, in the Nordic and Northern European countries, show us that it's possible to have really strong economic growth and reduce inequality at the same time. Australia really needs to be thinking about how it can do that. And as we've said, schools, teaching, education will be absolutely fundamental to rebuilding a better future. We've got a, we've great, a great asset. Um, we're... Australia is not performing particularly brilliantly on education, roughly about average of the OECD. We um, really can and should be um, aiming to do better by looking to emulate some of the countries such as Singapore and, and, and Finland and other countries around the world who are, leading, who are leading the world on that front. There's a lot we can learn from other countries. I'd say we should, probably should take this moment to do the policy scan around other, other countries around the world and, and ask ourselves what we can learn from them which is exactly what I tried to do in my, in my book. And um, it's a great moment to be doing that, I think. Yeah, definitely. I, with those, all of those things you mentioned, whether it's education or public health and everything, does that start in the public service? And does government play the biggest role in ch- making those changes or starting to make those changes? Yeah, well, public servants have got a hugely important role to play and governments obviously um, make a big difference make a critically important difference. And particularly in a country like Australia, where we have such a tradition of, of government, government, Australians trust government by and large, um, uh, certainly more than, more than in some countries we have, we respect the role of government and the public servants, I think as public servants, we need to be bold enough to be providing advice up to elected representatives uh, at this moment. I think in particular at this moment, public servants have got an opportunity to be thinking large and putting large ideas together based on, because everything about this pandemic has been large, the sky, the size of the fiscal response, the economic impact, the health, health impact, the scale of the recovery that we're going to need to go through. Everything about it is large and the policy response will need to be large. And that, that really puts the onus back on public servants to, expand their thinking beyond the everyday to go out and look for the best ideas, the biggest ideas, the most consequential ideas in the world, and really be bold enough to be feeding those back up to elected representatives, to have those conversations with each other and with elected representatives about just what might be possible on the other side of this. And I think uh, there's really, there really is the onus on those working within government to be leading some of those conversations. And it's a really exciting time to be in government leading some of those conversations. So I, I certainly am excited to be working uh, within the government sphere at this particular time. It's enormously challenging, but it is also one of those moments in history where we get the opportunity to be influential in just a little way, perhaps in shaping what our future looks like. And this is one of those future shaping moments. Andrew Weir, thanks so much for being part of Public Sector Perspectives. Real pleasure. Thank you, Hayley. Thanks for, thanks for having me.
That brings us to the end of this episode of Public Sector Perspectives. Andrew Weir's book, Solved, How Other Countries Have Cracked the World's Biggest Problems and We Can Too, is out now and available for purchase on a number of online platforms, including Readings, Book Depository and Amazon. Public Sector Perspectives is produced by IPA Victoria. If you missed the last episode, we spoke with Colin Radford, Chief Executive of WorkSafe Victoria, about how he built trust with the workforce he had only just started to lead before COVID-19 took hold of Australia. Looking for more ways to connect, share and learn? Join IPA's growing network of professionals and become a member today. Go to our membership page at fic.ipa.org.au. And if you enjoyed today's episode of Public Sector Perspectives, spread the word on social media and leave a review wherever you get your podcasts. You can get in touch with Public Sector Perspectives by emailing info at vic.ipa.org.au or via IPA Victoria on all the usual social media channels. I'm Hayley Ricketson, and thanks for listening. <laughs>